A recent Gallup poll reported that about 34% of American workers are engaged in their work, in their place of work. An engaged worker is enthusiastic about and committed to their workplace. As you know, uh, unemployment is at an all-time low. New jobs are being created. The economy is really doing very well. So this is a great indicator about the satisfaction that people get from their jobs in the United States. However, 16.5% are not engaged in their work. These are people that hate what they do for their work. They may hate the people they work with. They may hate the job. They may hate their boss. Okay, probably should move on and find something better to do. But that leaves 53% of workers who are in the not engaged category. They're not actively disengaged, but they're the people that we've all worked with that kind of show up when they have to, do the minimum that's required, and if need be, they're ready to jump ship to get a job that pays even slightly better. So what does the boss do to get people actively engaged in their workplace? Because productivity goes up when they do that. And why it's a big economic issue for workers. Does it have implications for how we think about our workplace as Catholics? That is, when we get up in the morning and we decide we're going to work as Jesus' disciple? This is Father John Arnold, and this is Oro Valley Catholic. So why are some people more engaged in their work than other people? You know, people find the work they do in lots of ways. Uh, some people have are given a choice of what work they do. I was listening to the story of one man whose dad was a doctor, and his dad told him that I'll pay for your education, and you can do anything you want to do as long as you're a doctor. So he started going through the training. Dad paid for the education but he couldn't stand the work. He ended up becoming a psychologist. But in the church, we have a legacy of people who take on jobs they don't really like. We've all heard the stories, and they're true stories, about the Catholic priest who became a priest because it would make his mom and dad proud. And then either he bailed out right after their death, or he's just a miserable priest. You know, if you're going to work, you ought to find something about it that engages you. I was recently listening to a podcast by Arthur Brooks, and I'll talk more about that a little bit later because he's a real thoughtful Catholic guy, and he got me thinking about these issues. He was interviewing a man named Adam Grant, who is an American psychologist, has his doctorate in psychology, and is currently a professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania specializing in organizational psychology. He's apparently the youngest tenured professor they've ever had at the Wharton School. You know, in my sense, good psychology generally makes good spiritual sense. But he had some insights about what makes a, a workplace engaging. Here are the three things he said that the uh, the employer can actually control. The first is that workers 
ought to have some autonomy under their bosses. You cannot be happy. You have a supervisor who is breathing down your neck, constantly tearing you down with negative motivations. Um, you got to respect the person you're working for. Then Dr. Grant said, number two, you should find a place to work where you actually like the people you work with, where you share values with them, and that you have a sense of trust. You don't want to enter an industry that you just can't buy into. Working with people who either undermine you or constantly make your job harder than it has to be undermines workplace engagement. If you're doing work that you don't respect, you're not going to like your job either. Here's his third rule. Ultimately, you have to believe that the work you do is useful and challenging, that somebody's actually getting something out of this, even if the, the employer is just becoming more uh, prosperous, and that you feel challenged to be better at the work that you're doing. And so he gave this example, and it was from the University of Michigan, and it was the people that were employed there as fundraisers for the University of Michigan scholarship program. Uh, you know, if you're going to be someone who makes cold calls trying to raise money for scholarships, you better get used to a lot of rejection. So that could be kind of a negative work environment, according to Dr. Grant. But here's the test that they did at Michigan or the experiment. They took their fundraisers and they split them into three separate groups. The first group, they brought a, a kid in who had received a scholarship, and he explained to them how important a Michigan education was to him, how uh, his mom and dad, brothers and sisters, were Michigan people. His sister was conceived right after a Michigan victory over Ohio State in the annual football game, and that it wasn't possible for him to go to school at Michigan without this scholarship. The second group, got the same message, but it was in writing. The third group, the control group, got nothing. Well, you probably guessed the results. But in that first group that had the personal interaction with the person whose life their work had affected, the productivity of that group went up about 174%, according to Dr. Grant. They just got more excited about what they were doing, and it translated into their conversations with people on the phone. The second group that got the written report did marginally better. The third group, well, nothing happened. And so it says that in work, you want to have a sense that you're connecting. Something good is happening. So the rules for a happy workplace are good leadership, some personal autonomy, a sense of meaning to your work. You want to work in a community and with people that challenge you and support you in being better. Um, you know, it all sounds pretty good. It wouldn't want to work in a place like that. But how many workplaces have some combination of these factors? Well, apparently about as many as it takes to employ 36% of the American workforce. So it's possible to move some of these others into a better spot. But think about all of that, about what makes for happy work. And ask yourself, if you started to think of your discipleship for Jesus as being like going to work every day, how would you rate Jesus as a boss? how challenging the work is. 
whether or not you're making a difference, the community that you work in. Every day you get up, your boots hit the ground, and you start working. Here's how Jesus describes that job. The Gospel today comes from the fifth chapter of St. Matthew, and it's in the part of the, the uh, Matthean Gospel that's called the Sermon on the Mount. You know, it starts out, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there shall be the kingdom of heaven. But once you get through the Beatitudes, and that's that part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continues his teaching. In the Gospel today, it's the part of the Sermon on the Mount that's called the antithesis or the antithesis. Do you remember that Jesus' criticism of the scribes and the Pharisees is that their concern, too concerned, about appearances, not the interior reality of the person. The law is what you do. You gotta hit the buttons. How you feel about it really doesn't matter. That's the attitude Jesus is, is uh, complaining about. He's criticizing. And maybe some Pharisees were really like that. Clearly some were not. Joseph of Arimathea was a Pharisee and he wasn't like that. But today the Lord's teaching begins, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This sentence about your righteousness surpassing the scribes and the Pharisees is at that heart of the conflict controversy about faith and works. You remember that was big in the Reformation, the Lutheran Reformation, and in, as usual, in angry conversations, nobody listens to each other. And that's really the story of the Reformation as much as, as anything else and all the political shenanigans that went on in the uh, 16th century. But uh, at the heart of this controversy is the relationship between what you do and the interior motivations for what you do. You see, Jesus is promoting the profound idea that you should love the Torah because it's good, true, and beautiful. You should love it for what it is, not for what you get out of doing religion. So if you're doing it for how other people see you, there is absolutely no reward in following the law because to actually love the law will change you. And this is the difference between an intrinsic and an extrinsic reward. Jesus uses the antithesis, the antithesis, to make this point. So he says, you have heard it said, and then he describes uh, that you can divorce your wife, something like that. Then the antithesis is, but I say to you, and if you look at the movement in the gospel, it's always about some exterior act that Jesus criticizes the interior roots. Well, let's go through and talk about them. So the first one is, you have heard it said uh, to your ancestors, you shall not kill, and whoever kills will be liable to judgment. That's still good law. But then Jesus says this, but I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The exterior act versus the interior disposition. That's the thesis and the antithesis. So Jesus is saying it's not enough to say that you didn't kill somebody. You know, the old Catholic thing, well, I didn't go to confession because, you know, I didn't kill anybody. Jesus is saying that is not enough. 
if you are harboring anger towards your brother or your sister, then you are participating in the evil of the act of murder. Well, here it is again. You have heard it said, Jesus says, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Remember, Jimmy Carter became famous for quoting that. He was a good guy. Not a great politician, but he was a good and decent man. So, okay, you haven't slept with somebody else's spouse. Fine. Jesus is pointing, however, to the obsession with sex can be inside of us. Then Jesus says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a bill of divorce. But I say to whoever divorces his wife, unless the marriage is unlawful, causes her to commit adultery, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So if you have to split because of the other person's adultery, that still isn't uh, being it's okay to remarry because you would commit adultery or she would commit adultery. His point is, because it's this ancient world, that when a man divorces his wife, he forces her essentially into an adulterous relationship or prostitution. And he does more harm to her out of the divorce than if he just remained married. Then the last one is, again, you have heard it said that to your ancestors, do not take a false oath, but make good to the Lord all that you vow. But I say to you, do not swear at all, not by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more is from the evil one. And the propensity of always saying, I swear this is true. You get into an argument with someone over who, what year the United University of Arizona won basketball. Why are you saying, I swear this is true? Uh, the idea of giving an oath is a as a sacred thing. You can't give it uh, callously or easily. You should just learn to tell the truth. You shouldn't use oaths to prove that you're telling the truth. You should just say yes when you mean yes and no when you mean no. So in these antitheses, these four antitheses, the Lord is describing our affection for sin that we harbor, we guard in our heart. How can we let that go? When we engage with the evil in our mind and heart, we are guilty because, in essence, we love what is evil, even though we may not end up doing it. People refrain from bad behavior because they're afraid of being caught, not because they love the good. On the outside, they look like they follow Christ, but on the inside, they entertain vile and evil thoughts. St. Francis de Sales counseled this way in his book, Introduction of the Devout Life. Foremost amongst the soul's affections is love. Love is the ruler of every motion of the heart, drawing all to itself and making us like to that which we love. Beware then, my daughter, of harboring any evil affection, or you too will become evil. You become what you love. That's a human reality. If you love what is evil, if you love disruption, that's what you'll become. If you love goodness, truth, and beauty, my friends, you're on the way to heaven. St. Francis de Sales says that all sin is rooted in a disordered affection for evil. 
Um, likewise, sanctity is rooted in an affection, a sincere love for God and the things of God. You know, we're coming into an election year. My guess, things are going to get hot. Why? Well, it's always the same issues that have torn up our country for any number of decades now. Catholics ought to take very seriously the defense of life, whether it's uh, children in the womb or the elderly uh, subjected to euthanasia, uh, whether it's the person on the border who's being mistreated. You may disagree with public policy, but you cannot hate the little child that drowns in the Rio Grande coming across the river. So we have to pay attention to anger in our hearts. You know what I really have enjoyed lately, and I've, I've put uh, here on my podcast page, is this podcast by Arthur Brooks. Arthur Brooks is a professor of the practice of public leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School and the Arthur C. Patterson faculty fellow at the Harvard Business School. You think he was a liberal, but he's not. Before joining the Harvard faculty in July of 2019, he served for 10 years as president of the Washington, D.C.-based American Enterprise Institute, one of the world's leading think tanks. And what I thought was interesting about his story is he converted to Catholicism at the age of 16. His parents were very liberal uh, Presbyterians, and I don't think that really thrilled them that he became a Catholic. Brooks tells the story that he goes home to visit his mom and dad, and his political leanings are moving in a different direction than his parents. And he's in there in the kitchen, and he's preparing dinner with his mom, and his mom's very quiet. His mom's not talking to him. So he turns to her and goes, Mom, is, is there something wrong? Have I done something? And she says to him, she says, you know, your dad and I are very concerned about you. Do you vote Republican? Well, that story is so much about families that are uh, pulled apart by angry issues, and especially politics, friends in the workplace, family, people at church. And so Here's some things I'd ask you to put into the wheelhouse and think about affection for sin and what you can do to become more effective in representing what you truly believe is good for the country, but also avoiding the sin of anger and the uh, degradation of another person. So here's the two things that Dr. Brooks talks about. And listen to his whole podcast. Gosh, I think they're great. But the first thing he says, doesn't say it exactly like this, but he says, avoid the narrow occasion of sin. And this he's right about. He calls it the outrage industrial complex. And that is these media outlets, both cable news, online, that stoke anger. Because why? Because you keep punching in to watch one more show. There's something empowering about our feelings of anger. But we should remember Jesus' words about anger and then our own experience as to whether or not anger really helps you in love of neighbor. So he says, tune things out. Part of the Christian work is avoiding those kinds of things that undermine uh, your warm-heartedness. And that's really the second part of it. How do you practice warm-heartedness, love of your enemies? It's one of his books I've read, which is an excellent book about how it is that you engage people that you're angry with. He says, 
If you know it's going to be an angry interchange, what you do is this, is before you respond, after you listen carefully, you say four or five things to the other person that shows that you listened, that you see that there are sincere Americans, they're actually concerned about the well-being of the country, that you disagree with them, and here's the reasons you disagree with them, but you recognize that they are not evil incarnate. You don't say it like that, but that's what the point of all of this is. You know, it's amazing to me, and it should be to you, that America's got uh, the lowest employment in years, the highest engagement at work in years, uh, and it's such an angry place. There is something running through our country that we Catholics need to be aware of. So let's be aware of this year, interior disposition to anger and other sins, because it will lead to workplace disengagement. And if the workplace is the work of being a disciple, being disengaged from Jesus is a spiritually dangerous place to begin to be. We will begin to hate what we should love. And remember what Francis de Sales said, in your interior dispositions, hate what is evil, love what God loves. You know, these political issues, and they're big ones, and we've had big ones about what it means to be an Ameri- be a human being in our country. Let's for- don't forget, we used to buy and sell slave children. Let's not forget about how uh, we massacred Indians. They're a pretty violent crowd too, but we weren't the peacemakers and all of that. Let's remember our own dark parts of our history. Let's not repeat them. And so quit worrying so much about what happens after you die because that's like a chocolate chip cookie. What you really want to be aware of is do you love what God loves in this world, in the here and now? God wants you to love your neighbor. And it's how you talk about them. It's how you think about them. And it's how you interact with them. And so uh, be happier in your work. Uh, You got a great boss. You're in a great community. You're doing work that really matters because it's for the salvation of the world. This has been another episode of Oral Valley Catholic, and I'm Father John Arnold. I have to tell you, people ask me, uh, not infrequently, uh, how I vote. And the truth is, is uh, ever since the nation uh, became more angry, and this is not something new, I thought, boy, if I'm going to be an effective priest, I better try not to be political, to talk about issues like abortion or how we treat people at the border, but not candidate issues. So I don't register and I don't vote, but I think about how it is that my parishioners should think about being citizens is very important. And they can't leave their Catholic faith, especially love of enemies, at the doorway to the pole. So God bless you. Get out there and do great work for our Lord.